Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Biblical Studies. This is Philip Michael Sherman, a host of the channel. Our guest today is Professor Hannah Tervanotko, the author of Denying Her Voice, The Figure of Miriam in Ancient Jewish Literature. Hello, and welcome back. To new books in biblical studies. This is Philip Michael Sherman, a host of the channel. Our guest today is Professor Hannah Tervanotko, the author of Denying Her Voice, The Figure of Miriam in Ancient Jewish Literature. Hannah Tervanotko analyzes the treatment and development of Miriam as a literary character in ancient Jewish texts, taking into account all the references to this figure preserved in ancient Jewish literature from the exilic period to the early 2nd century. These texts demonstrate that the picture of Miriam preserved in the ancient Jewish texts is richer than the Hebrew Bible suggests. The results provide a contradictory image of Miriam. On the one hand, she becomes a tool of Levitical politics, whereas on the other, she continues to enjoy a freer role. People continue to interpret earlier literary traditions in light of new situations, and interpretations varied in different contexts. Second, in light of post-structuralist literary studies that treat texts as reflections of specific social situations, Tervanotko argues that the treatment of Miriam in ancient Jewish literature reflects mostly a reality in which women had little space as active agents. Despite the general tendency to allow women only little room, the references to Miriam suggest that at least some prominent women may have enjoyed occasional freedom. Welcome, Professor Tervanotko. Thank you very much, Philip. Our first question is always about the author's uh, intellectual background and how you came to be interested in the study of the Hebrew Bible and, in this case, early Jewish texts. How did you find yourself interested uh, in biblical literature and specifically uh, the figure of Miriam? Thank you. Well, I think like if I answer uh, honestly this question, I have to go quite back in, in, in time. Um, I saw my earliest memory of... Um, of interpretation of a biblical text was in mid-80s in my native Finland, where I was born and raised. And there was a there was a big debate uh, in the in the Lutheran Church, which is the which is the biggest denomination in in Finland, about opening the ministry for women. And uh, I remember like that biblical texts were used both both as pro and contra, whether women should, um, should be uh, in ministry and act as ministers in congregation. And somehow, like, um, even if, like, for somebody who was not into uh, Bible at that time, um, I, the, um, the public conversations came out as something very interesting, and they, um, and they were, they were debated in the, in the media, and, um, and you heard people talking about it. 
So that's sort of like when I when I remember the the first time the the contents of biblical texts being being debated and um, and they caught my caught my interest. The other thing was that I was also I was I was raised in a in a congregation where my uh, the the two closest pastors who I was in contact with, both of them were biblical scholars, and uh, for for me like sort of um, an open interpretation of Bible and even historical critical perspectives brought. For the for the interpretation of the of the texts was quite uh, quite quite regular. So then, when I years later I ended up in in a university and I started to to study for my for my degree, it was actually it was quite shocking to realize that this was not at all like the the regular interpretation. And there were people for whom historical critical perspectives already as such were uh, controversial. Um. Yeah. So having said that, from the beginning, when I when I went to university, it was clear for me that I wanted to I wanted to learn, I wanted to study the texts further. And then uh, when then when it came the time that I had to sign for a seminar, there was um, uh, my professor led um, a seminar about um, the Qumran manuscripts. So we were in, we were invited. The students were invited to make a Finnish translation and a commentary on specific texts. And I love that. I was like, wow, this is totally new material and w- what it has to offer. So, so yeah, those things all together, like maybe maybe some initial questions of my own about the biblical interpretation, uh, but then like this really new um, material that offered questions that had not been posed before. That's well, can, where I come from. Can you introduce us to Miriam, who she is and why she's such an interesting figure to study? Well, Miriam, most of the people when when uh, when I start to talk about my work, um, they would remember Miriam as the sister of Moses, mostly Moses. Interestingly, not so much of Aaron, and perhaps thoughts go to the crossing of the Sea of Reeds uh, easily. Um, I ended up working with Mi- Miriam. A little bit um, coincidentally, I had a I had a couple of years break after finishing my master's degree, and when I went went to the doctoral program, one of my one of the early I said immediately that I wanted to work on women in the biblical texts, um, and my supervisor, one of Armin Lange, one of the first assignments he gave me was to work on the Qumran text four Q three six five, which preserves this extended song of Miriam. And when I then, working with that text, started to look up look up all the different references to Miriam that from the Second Temple era, I found out that there was plenty of material, and I still remember the exact words of Armin Lange when when we were talking about my paper, and he said, "Anna, I, to me this starts to look like a PhD dissertation." So that's how it, that's how it's it's it started. Um, so why she is a good figure to study? Um, because there's a, there are there are plenty of references to Miriam uh, if we go to the Second Temple era. So in that sense, I think it's a not exceptional case. But to write an entire dissertation, you need some text with um, to work on. For my project, she was very it was a good figure because uh, the references that we have are very different by the, their literary genres and they preserve different information about Miriam. So also in that way, um, 
this topic turned out to be like a that you have a quite rich image of a of a female figure. At the beginning of your work, you suggest that ancient Jewish literature requires some clarification. And in this regard, a lot of what your book does is push us to think about biblical characters not bound by the biblical canon. So could you say something about why that was an important sort of methodological principle for you to think about Miriam as more than a biblical character, but an ancient Jewish literary figure who stretched way beyond the canon? Yes, I think I have uh, two answers for that. Um, well, first of all, I'm very much uh, supportive to, for the new, um, what should I say, new scholarship that suggests that for the for the texts that were composed before the canon, we should not call them biblical um, or canon. Well, especially not canonical, but avoid these um, terms that are more anachronistic, or if one wants to use them, be very specific about the use. But in my work, it, uh, um, as I wanted to look at the, uh, what, what references to Miriam are there in all ancient Jewish texts, these later categories were, are not helpful. So I wanted to, I wanted to emphasize that and which I've also in my other other works, I'm very much in a in a favor of this aspect, um, of given um, given all different texts similar importance when we don't know exactly what was more central text or more um, more important in antiquity. So that is a sort of somehow like. I would say a methodological principle. What I what I tend to have in all my work, not just here, um, but I think like when we talk about women's history, um, it is of it's of particular importance uh, because in many cases we deal with the, a few references. Like there are not entire narratives about women, and even um, to make this question about women's possible lives it's it's very hard to reconstruct in light of the of the very marginal references we have so i'm thinking that here um if we want to make this question well which is also the one of the one of the key points like what do we want to ask but if we want to ask what was what was the interpretation of miriam uh for me it just makes sense that then we take into account all the possible references and uh, do not give importance to to just some of them um, and I and I would suggest that this would be the case with any other mar- like somehow <laughs> I say this in the quotations like a marginal figure that um, that when you take take into account the bro- broader material of text you somehow open um, possibilities for for not just the more uh, interpretations but just the more complex image more coherent image even of what what, what was this. Um, figure in antiquity. Before we look at some of the images of Miriam that you draw out of these texts, I wonder if you could explain why you think uh, intertextuality or dialogism are really sort of important tools for making sense of these texts, like, as you mentioned, come from different genre, different time frames, and very often are utilized to make very different sort of ideological or theological points. Why do intertextuality and dialogism, those those two particular methods, if we want to call them methods, I suppose, how do they help? 
get at this story? Yeah, I'm. Um, I was looking for some concepts of um, that that could be um, tools to do, to speak about the possible relationships between the texts more specifically than when we say that there may be some interconnection or they are somehow related. And especially when we talk about these traditions that are literary traditions that are repeated in, uh, in different texts, that they somehow suggest that there is a dependency, but we cannot see that or we cannot, we cannot prove that. Um, so I wanted to, look, I, I was uh, looking for a concept that would somehow allow me to um, make, to make, the, to suggest such connections. And when I, in, so first, um, intertextuality, which has been used in, the, um, in, um, in literary studies, but um, I, I was, um, I thought that that concept as per se does not allow me to take into account um, the context or the, the societies that have produced the texts. So then when I, when, when I got to know um, about Bartin's dialogism, that somehow, that not just suggest that the texts, texts between themselves are in a dialogue with one another, but that there is a dialogue that goes to the context where they are authored and, and produced, meaning that, um, that, they, that these contexts always leave traces in the texts. Well, you list three sort of categories, broad categories of texts to explore with regard to Miriam that start sometime from, from the Persian period um, all the way through the Hellenistic and into the Roman period. How would you how would you say Miriam is represented in the earliest biblical texts that we have, and and when would you date those texts too? And what do you think the social context is of those very earliest uh, mentions? If you want to go out on a limb there, <laughs> always dangerous to ask a biblical scholar to date a text. I know. Oh wow! Yes, that was a big question. I uh, I think as you have noticed, I tend to make these broad categories like. Persian era, the earliest text, because, um, and I know many biblical scholars here would um, would date especially the Song of Miriam much earlier, which I think it's is possible, but the way the texts are preserved to us, I tend to like the, um, to give a bit of a bit later, later dates. So I, that's why I didn't date anything um, before the, the Persian era. I, um, if we think about like the image of Miriam that raises from the earliest text, like of course there's the famous uh, reference to to the Miriam, the the prophetess, and almost parallelly we hear um, in Micah six four about Miriam um, being presented next to Moses and Aaron as one of the early Israelites leaders. So especially in light of those two texts, I think it, it raises many interesting questions about women in antiquity and their social role and uh, and um, and their possible um, leadership role. And that, but almost uh, as as important or as strong in these texts is of course the image of the of the sister, which as such is is very interesting. Um, 
presentation of a, of a female figure that Miriam, unlike many other women in the Bible, is mostly known as the sister figure, not as someone's wife or spouse or or daughter that you would encounter much more frequently. Um, so uh, what, what, what does it mean that she's a sister? Does this mean that because uh, that she has some kind of a loser connection with the family, there is no um, male figure uh, under whom, whose uh, authority Miriam falls automatically? Um, these are some directions. The... Um, the other, other one, one another interesting reference to Miriam is, of course, the um, uh, Numbers twelve, where she, so where she confronts Moses and challenges Moses. That did God only speak through Moses? Didn't He speak through us too? Um, and and this this text is 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 very interesting. Uh, tells tells a lot about the biblical interpretation because in the later later. Um, references or uh, later Jewish literature that somehow refers back to this passage, the conflict is almost always erased as as if it didn't happen. Or if it did happen, um, the reasons for it are not repeated because, um, well, it's somehow a difficult passage. So what happens to Miriam as we move into the Hellenistic and Roman periods? Um, what happens to her in a book like like Jubilees, or how is she treated in an author like Philo? Are there are there points of continuity? Uh, does she uh, is she further marginalized? How how do later authors take up some of these stories and use them uh, to craft their own narratives around these traditions? Shall we just go like one by one, different eras, or how would you like to go? Okay. Well, if I say something about the the, the Hellenistic era, as you mentioned, um, if we stay within the within the canon, like Chronicles is an interesting text because it lists Miriam uh, as one of the sons, like Beni, of Amram, and the way her name appears next to uh, the other sons, uh, Moses and Aaron, it looks almost well, I argue that it's a later addition to that passage. That if you compare it to the other, to the lists in general that appear in Chronicles, the way this name appears, the Miriam, um, it, it seems to differ from the general style of of the book. I wonder what are the what are the reasons that the name, if we if we accept that it was a later addition, what, what are the reasons that this name was added is it because Miriam became so important uh, or people knew that there was another child of Amram whose name uh, should be mentioned there perhaps because there are other lists as in numbers where the name is next to Aaron and Moses so for all these reasons but nevertheless I find it remarkable that this um, that this name is um, is there. If we look at the Jubilees, it's another interesting case because uh, there, um, there, are stu- there are studies about women in, in Jubilees and it's generally accepted that Jubilees uh, emphasizes some, some female figures. 
but most of them are the um, the Genesis mothers um, that have a that have a that have an important role as the as the spouses for the patriarchs and as the as the and the the, the author has the emphasis emphasizes the specific lineages in the text. So it's also important to show um, who's who's the mother of each important male figure. But in contrast to all these references, like Miriam does not appear like that. And um, but to, but she's in the in the context of when um, Moses is Moses is found in the is put placed in the basket in the River Nile. So Exodus two, and this text then mentions my my uh, sister Miriam watched over. No, sorry, your sister, because then, then there's another text which is almost con- contemporary uh, from. Ptolemaic Egypt, Exagoge, which also mentions Miriam in the in the same literary context, Exodus 2. So we can we can roughly say at least that from this era on, uh, perhaps second century BCE, it's well known and accepted that the sister figure, the anonymous sister of Exodus 2, is now Miriam in the texts, because that's what the authors write, that Miriam was there. Um, the same motif is um, present in uh, Philo and in Josephus too. Philo only talks about the sister, so similarly to Exodus two, he does not mention who is the who is the sister. But then Philo um, uses the well. We know that Philo often when he talks about female figures, they are not specific women or. Um, or should I say everyday women, but they are more symbols um, for his uh, for themes that he deals with in his in his texts. And uh, when he writes about numbers twelve, then Miriam appears as um, symbol for irrational behavior or somehow foolishness. One could say. But then there's a like there's an opposite interpretation when he talks about Miriam uh, in the context of the Vita Contemplativa, where Miriam is a, is a, is a like a symbolic leader for the um, for the female members of the therapeutic community. So there, Philo talks about two chorus: the chorus of men and the chorus of women. So men are led by Moses and the women are led by Miriam. This is also a quite interesting passage because, um, well, he, okay, he makes this separation that the men are led, the men are and women are led by different figures, um, and nominates Miriam as the as women's leader. Maybe he there talk, thinks about um, Exodus 15 and where all the women follow Miriam. Uh, but of course, in Philo's text, it's always clear that um, Moses is superior to Miriam. Uh, also in, in this in this context, and, there, and elsewhere where he where he refers to the same same passage, so that he seemingly accepts female leadership, but to uh, to the, only to a certain extent, I could say. If I did, yeah. Shall I continue about Josephus? Well, there's a particular text I really would be interested in hearing you talk about, um, particularly given its focus on on leadership in general. 
the book that's that's known as Biblical Antiquities of Pseudophilo. Um, how does how does the author Pseudophilo deal with the figure of Miriam, given such a strong focus in that work on leaders and the nature of leadership? Yes, that's a very very interesting text, and I keep on going back to it. Um, because here there's, um, yes, the, the author, who we don't know, the text has been attributed to Philo in some medieval manuscripts, and thus the pseudo-Philo, which is not very helpful. But um, you're right, leadership is a very central theme in the book. And, um, and he, the author, um, the anonymous author, writes about, um, writes about Moses' um, birth uh the so it's it's also a re-narration of exodus 2 in some way but takes takes this account quite far from the from the from the version of the hebrew bible um for instance by by um by adding a passage about miriam how miriam has a dream vision about moses's birth so one could think that this um that miriam has a vision in the night uh about an, an about the figure dressed in white who's in in the who stands in the, in the river and um, and one could think and it has been suggested that perhaps the author here tries to somehow answer the question that what was Miriam's prophecy about because in the Bible we don't know Miriam is called the prophetess but it remains problematic that what is the prophecy about when we don't know we don't know we should know. Uh, so the later authors have um, have somehow um, tried to answer the, answer this question with uh, with their own narratives. And the interesting thing here is that in that same same uh, passage in Liber Antiquitatum Biblicarum uh, is that the, the parents do not believe her. So in somehow she stands out in that context as as the as the chosen person who has the true information, which is not recognized. But of course, uh, being being a later narrative, I also like like this um, kind of a play with the, with the audience. Like, of course, audience who reads that story knows all the time that she's right. So does she, so. I I I like to think that is this somehow um, that she comes out in that context as yeah. As a matter of fact, as like like many prophetic figures who are not believed. Like uh, we think about Jeremiah, for instance, that isn't that almost like um, a topos in a in a prophetic prophetic text that you have a prophecy, uh, but if it is a real prophecy, one should not believe immediately. And I think that comes across very strong in that in the LAB in that context. There's also another reference to Miriam in in the same text, where um, where they list gifts that the Israelites received during their time in the wilderness. And this text uh, states that God gave them water um, for, uh, for Miriam's sake. It's not entirely uh, clear where this comes from, but of course, like the M- Miriam's well, the cup of Miriam has, has, a, has a, a long reception history ever since. But it's possible that here um, the author may have had in mind um, Numbers 20, the passage where Miriam first dies in the first verse. um, And right after that, um, the the Israelites 
get to get water that there's a water from the from the rock so so it's possible that uh, the the author of lab makes a connection with the with the two passages that the water was received uh, by by miriam's sake but nonetheless as as it's the first time that that specific um tradition is attributed to miriam um I think it does say something about the importance of this figure or um, yeah, the, the attempts to even to give more standing for her, perhaps. Well, one of the things I really appreciated about the work is the, the sort of the textual work is, is very detailed and very methodical. And you move through all of uh, these far more references to Miriam than I think I would ever have thought existed in this body of literature, just if you had, had sort of asked me about it off, off the cuff. But there's also another story that you're telling about sort of the socio-cultural context that are producing all of these texts. And and I wonder if there's a way to, uh, without oversimplifying maybe, but boil it down to there's this early vision of female leadership. And here's perhaps how how it changes over the course of five centuries or so and and sort of using Miriam then as as an index for what we can know about female autonomy or the roles of women uh, in Jewish antiquity and more broadly speaking in the ancient world. That, I know that's a huge sort of setup there, but maybe if you can, can talk a little bit about behind the textual work, what's, what's the larger story that you're trying to tell here about women in Jewish antiquity? Um, yeah. Uh, well, it's, it's, it's interesting. Every time I'm, uh, I'm kind of uh, asked that uh do you like almost every time i talk about my work people ask me do you study women because you're a woman yourself and uh i think that if i'm completely honest i have to i have to say i have to answer that yes because uh i think that for many people this is of importance and women like to know what's happening with the with the women in the texts yeah, like there, there are two things that I uh, that I want to mention. Like one is that um, I think that of course of course it's true that when we look at the when we look at the Bible, we look at the reference to to women. Um, they are, they are not that many. Like they are clearly marginal if we compare where like all the instances where a female figure is present with all the all the male figures. There's a clear imbalance with with them. And uh, and I think that uh, one thing is that it, we can change this imbalance is by bringing those marginal figures into the center of our study. And that's a little bit what I've tried to do here, that um, if we put them under under the lens, like instead of saying, instead of always accepting it and taking this as the starting point for all our conversations, like women who are marginal, women are not there. Uh, we will keep on hearing the same story all over and over again. But I think what I wanted to show in this work is that if we turn this question around and say that, okay, I will take this uh, figure that whom we do not know so much about, but I focus entirely on that figure. What what kind of uh, information comes out from, from that study? And I think this is um this is an one way somehow to try to recuperate the long history of interpretation that we've had 
and even to try to change the perspective we have for for these for these texts what about the about the cultures absolutely right like what can these what can these tell texts tell about the cultures but we have that uh, we have to be quite careful how we pose that question like first of all maybe like my very broad first answer to this question already shows that um i think i think we have to accept that not all the texts answer all our questions even if i have a te- i have a question so my burning question has been like all right where are the women what happened to them but this is not this has not been the the question that the the authors of these texts may have had but if they didn't have that question in their mind i we, we cannot like um draw too many conclusions as we have done like okay women were not there so it means that they were not important uh, there's something which is not sound in this um in this logic so at least i think like when we bring women to the center of our study is, is one way to to shift the perspective but then again like um when you think about each each text and the contexts where they were um authored or where they where they were born um to what extent can we know what the authors wanted to say or uh, or even um even um to place the place the text in a specific context i really think that here we are in the might be in the limits of the biblical studies we often cannot cannot answer that question yeah i i, I really uh, like some of the the limited response that that you feel that we can get from these texts. I mean, I think, you know, to go back to a text um, like uh, Pseudophilo for a second, where, (laughs) where Miriam is given this role as a prophetess and is sort of imported into the narrative in Exodus early, early part of Exodus. It's difficult from our perspective, at least I, I feel the difficulty with knowing whether or not this, reflects an openness to female prophecy on the part of the author and therefore a broader social or religious context for that kind of activity, or whether this is exegetical, whether this is, you know, someone not thinking about those issues at all, but trying to make the text um, synchronized with everything else that they know about the biblical text, or if it can be both in some level. And so I just to say, I appreciate sort of the um, here's the question I have. Here's what I really wish the text would tell me. Here's what I think it might be telling me, but here's also the yeah. limit uh, that I see. And, and I wonder sort of in, in looking at the, the work that you see for yourself in the future, um, is this a, a broader topic to which you see yourself returning or uh, do you feel like, okay, I have, I have touched on Miriam. So I, I, I can close that chapter or is this still a question that you see yourself coming back to? How how do how do we find women in Jewish antiquity? Where are they, and how would we know if we found them? If I can just just very quickly comment what you said in the beginning about the can we say anything what the author author what was their standing or their take, for instance, on female prophecy? I think in the case of uh, pseudo Philo, um, if we compare that, for instance, to a contemporary Josephus who attributes almost the same vision to Miriam's father. At least I think I think it's fair to say that we see that there are different 
takes on it. And uh, some somebody calls pseudo Philo like a feminist. I would not say that, but uh, but at the same time, it does. It does say something about the authorial intentions, like if in one text the same vision or almost the same vision is attributed to the father figure and uh, in another text to the daughter. The other thing, the other thing, I, yeah, I don't know if it says anything about the, what the author thinks about female prophecy, but at least I would, I tend to think that the minimum we can say is that there is no problem to re-narrate this. There is no problem to say that uh, even if this is um, to, cr- to create this, uh, we don't know even how new, but new to us, literary tradition, and pass that forward. Uh, okay, my future work. I think I, um, I'm, I have now shifted to, to work on something else. I still work on uh, prophecy and divination, but... Um, but my, my main focus is not on, on biblical figures in and uh, on female biblical figures in this moment, but I do think that this is a long this is a long project, and I, I will continue um, contributing to the field, but not perhaps by for taking a break for now because it was a very long project, and I think that I want to want to do uh, other things as well. Uh, but I do see the need. I see that, like I was saying, that um, that there is this big gap. So there's a gap which is partially created by the text, and then there's the gap that has been created by the interpretative history um, to bring more voices to the field and somehow like recover figures from the past. And I would like to encourage many people to take this, take such a such a task, and to to investigate. What kind of stories can these even marginal figures figures to tell? Yeah, so I, I'm I'm uh, for, for, it's not just the scholarly work, but I do think it's uh, partially like uh, when I when I got interested in the women in the early Jewish literature. Of course, it was somehow a question of uh, women's history and even of equal opportunities or uh, equality in sense that okay if uh, if we th- if we accept that uh, world uh, half of world's population was women uh, also in antiquity not just it, at our times where are all these people um, so of course if I think like it's uh, it's uh, such a project that I also have uh, other motivations to do that of course I will continue um, being interested in it and contributing in in the future, even when when my main focus is somewhere else. Once again, the book is Denying Her Voice, The Figure of Miriam in Ancient Jewish Literature. Thank you, Hannah Turvanaco. Thank you very much.